Hello, Caroline here. The topic of this week's episode is on postpartum depression and may be a sensitive discussion to listen to for some. Please consider this a soft trigger warning and a request to be gentle with yourself in choosing the time and space you might choose to listen to it. After hearing about the personal experience of postpartum depression from our first guest, Amanda, we're joined by Dr. Cassidy Freitas, who is a therapist that specializes in postnatal care and has incredible resources that she shares for both mothers and fathers that experience postpartum depression, anxiety, or OCD. And with that, here's this week's episode. Automatically, the first thing that was sacrificed was me. And, and I cared so much about, and this is probably not true of everyone by any means, but I wanted people to think I was doing a good job. And that, I don't know why I cared so much about. I don't, I'm not sure. You're listening to Out of Line with Caroline Lee, exploring offline realities with online personalities. Amanda Carter Gomez began her career in marketing, event management, production, and PR. In July of 2017, Amanda launched her latest endeavor, The Fold, an online publication for women of an uncertain age and particular attitude to fill the void in online content for women beyond the millennial age range. She and her husband, Matt, live with their two sons in Seattle, Washington. Hi. So tell me, so tell me about life and motherhood life. And, you know, um, you have, is it two kiddos? Two. Yes. Two boys, four and eight. Four and eight. Okay. And so tell me about, um, tell me about your, your process. Tell me about being pregnant and postpartum life. Tell me about your expectations and just, I want to hear your whole experience, all the juicy stuff. All the juicy stuff. Um, well, my experience was vastly different with both children. Um, I, you know, for the most part, had relatively easy pregnancies with both and enjoy being pregnant. Uh, that was a similarity. My first child, I was so focused on the birth itself. I um, delivered with midwives in a hospital. I really wanted a natural birth. So I read all, you know, as many books as I could get my hands on, on, you know, love dying to make Gaskin still do. She's wonderful. Um, and focused a lot on that day and that, you know, what wound up being a 12 hour period. I journaled about it for a month prior to it happening. Um, you know, went to acupuncture, went to energy healers, did everything to do. I could, to take care of myself, um, exercise, ate healthily, all of those things, uh, in anticipation of, you know, having this really empowering, I hoped birth experience. Um, the difference between that and my second child was that I, my second child just didn't have the time to do all those things. <laughs> I did some of them, you know, I stopped exercising at like six or seven months. And then I, you know, I tried to eat as healthy as I could, but I had a child and it was kind of a stressful time in our lives. And we literally moved into the, um, our home a week before I had my second child. And with my second, I actually had a home birth. So I was signing, you know, we had just sold our house and I was signing, uh, papers, with a notary in my home and like leaving 
getting up from our kitchen table, leaving every 10 minutes, walking into a different room, like breathing through contractions because I was in labor, like why we were doing it. Hmm. This girl, I'm sure I terrified her. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I went into my first birth and it was just like clockwork. Um, you know, my, everything proceeded well. I delivered, uh, my son Winslow at the hospital naturally, like I had hoped to, um, it was kind of, a you know, stressful experience the first time around, just, just cause it was all so new, but you know, a lot of this I had done looking back because I really wanted to ensure that I had could avoid somehow in my mind, I thought that if I had a natural birth, I'd be able to avoid postpartum depression. I don't know where that came from. Wow. And I think I just knew that my family history was very, uh, we are a family that is sensitive to hormones. I had gone through periods in my life in the past where I had been in probably like gone through a hard time and just like was in a funk, not in the best space. And I had something that like, I could just increase the amount of exercise that I was doing or make some certain changes, whether it was like change jobs or I would always like try to move to a different city or not always, but sometimes, you know, these are bigger shifts, but there was something I could alter and in a way control that, um, would improve my mood. And this has just happened like, you know, here, like in college or going to therapy more, you know, that obviously helps too. I'm not like afraid of therapy and embraced it for a long time. So, um, I did all these things, this natural birth and the energy healing and the acupuncture, which I had already been doing, but just like, you know, ramped everything up in hopes of being like a really healthy postpartum version of myself. And so what I didn't realize is that I had put so much attention on the birth and, um, had these expectations of what type of mother I was going to be. I assumed because I was a babysitter in the past that I was going to be a really awesome mom, <laughs> which <laughs> is not a good correlation I think, and I think this is part of the, our culture too, is that we focus so much on the outcome of this one day, like you getting this birth that you want to, we focus very little in turn on like what happens to the mother afterwards. Right. It's like this focus on just having the healthy baby. And, um, so I wasn't anticipating or expecting like what would happen after two and a half months of having a baby and having no sleep, you know, um, and, not having any family support. Um, there have been some other transitions that had happened prior to Winslow's birth. I was, had left my job to start a business with somebody. And a month before he was born, this person decided they didn't want to have a business partner anymore, which was like fully fine and her choice. And that was a very amical separation, but it left me kind of like, okay, what do I do next? Well, now I'm going to have a baby, but then what happens after that? And who am I after that? Um, mm. I was in a so all of these things happened. So essentially Winslow was two and a half months old. I had dealt with the delivery and like the repercussions of that, just with regards to like the physical recovery. Um, but the pressure and just not knowing and not having really, I had one friend at the time who had had a child and there was so much, I just didn't know about how to take care of myself. Um, and so much pressure I put on myself about what new motherhood was supposed to look like. Mm. Um, I remember calling her with the first time I had to go somewhere and just crying because I could not, it's like I was walking in quicksand trying to get out the door. There was always something that I had to do. Like the baby pooped or the baby needed to be fed. And I was going to be an hour late to something. And I just said, is this how it's always going to be? You know, this is my, our first outing on our own. Um, and there was just, nobody told me these things and nobody told me how to take care of myself. And everyone says you sleep when the baby sleeps, but that's just, it's so counterintuitive to what we are as women and as people prior to having this person 
added to your life. You know, we kind of come and go as we want. We're on our own schedule. And, um, I think there's a lot of expectation that that's what your life is going to be like just with a person involved, a little, a little baby did, you know, and it's, it's a big shock to the system. So sorry, I've gone off on a tangent, but um, no, no, do it all. Um, so all this to say that my first, I had Winslow around two and a half months, he started two and a half months old. He started um, not sleeping through the night at all, like waking up every 45 minutes. So we were in this like sleep deprived state. And then I was in a new mom's group actually, um, with like three other women and we had a, like a, a tragic death, two deaths actually happened in the group. Um, we came one week and found out that one of the mother's daughters had died of SIDS. And mm. then the following day that mother, um, she committed suicide. So it was just a horrible, horrible tragedy. Mm. <laughs> And that was happening at the same time that I had no sleep, um, struggling with not having any family support and then, um, had some struggles going on in my own immediate family who doesn't live in Seattle. And just like this, all of these things just started stirring and brewing. And I like kind of went to a, not kind of, I did, I went to, I went into a really dark space and I didn't recognize how dark it was or where I was for a couple months. I mean, I kind of knew things were not right. Mm. but I think I just kind of was like, well, there are these, these obstacles that are happening right now and this is what it is. And finally, after, um, one day I was at someone's home who had invited me and Winslow over for like moms hang out and their babies play and we'll have Mexican food. And she even made like margaritas and it was like, you know, and I just was sitting there and felt like a shell of a person and I could not even talk. I could not like, I couldn't even I w- it was like I was outside of my body and just kind of looking around at these other women and thinking, Oh my God, what am I doing here? How did I get here? And who, who, who is this person? Who am I? And I can't talk to anybody. I can't communicate with anyone. So I left and, um, a couple days later realized, just started doing some research. Like, Maybe I have postpartum depression. Maybe this is what this is because I had gotten to a point of feeling that I couldn't do anything well. I felt like I just sucked at everything. I sucked at being a mom. I sucked at being, um, you know, a, a person in the world. I sucked at like all of these things that I thought I was supposed to be able to do as a new mother. I, I couldn't, I didn't think I was doing well. Um, I couldn't, I didn't have a job at the time and I was trying to look for work and I couldn't even find the energy to, to do that. Um, I couldn't talk to people. I was just, I was just so depleted on all levels. Uh, and I thought this can't be right. Like this can't be how this is supposed to feel. So I called the midwives and they, um, they assured me that, that, that I was experiencing postpartum depression and said immediately, we will like, we will prescribe you medication right now. If you will come in to see us on Monday, this is like a Friday just to get you started. And I, at that time, because I was exclusively nursing by this time, Winslow had been going on for about two and a half months and Winslow was about five months old. Um, and I just felt like I didn't, I had never taken medication for like my emotional well-being before mm. and was really nervous about it. And so I just said, I don't want to do that. I'll come see you guys, but I want to try things a different way. And so I called my acupuncturist and started getting like acupuncture twice a month and went to a therapist who does also some like energy work too. And that was the path that I took, um, 
for me. And it wound up being a lot. I mean, it was great and they were wonderful, generous souls and they worked with me so, so, so long. And so, um, like compassionately, but, um, you know, by the time I had my second child going into it, I just said, I now recognize these emotions and know that they could potentially happen again. And if they do, I want to be on medication because Mm. yeah, again, like it's everyone's choice. Um, so, so yes, I think that with the second, it was much different in that way that I knew going into the, into the early into the pregnancy that if something were to happen for me, I thought, okay, it doesn't need to be that hard this time. Like Mm. I can, there are tools out there for me that if I need to utilize them, I'm very open to doing that Mm. because I realized how difficult it was for not for me, but also for my, it's not, you know, it's still like we, it took me, you know, a couple of years to even think about the idea of having another child. And it was my husband too. He just, he said, if it's, it's not worth it for me, for you to have to go through that again, mm. to have another, to, to have another baby. Like I, I choose your health and well being. you know? Mm, that's incredible. Before, be, yeah. I get before I choose like having another child, if it's going to put you through so much, you know? Mm. So that was great. Um, was he, was your husband aware of what was going on with you before, you know, before you had the, the margarita day, realization of, (laughs) of like, Oh my goodness, I'm a shell of a human. Yeah. He knew that I was not great. Mm -hmm. I think he just felt, yeah, he knew that there were things going on. I think he just felt really helpless and didn't know what he could do. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, he was a supportive partner and he came, you know, came home and was helpful and like did, but he had a job to go to every day. I think, um, I felt a lot of pressure. Like I put us, it was, it was a, you know, a difficult time for our family financially too, because we had been accustomed to two incomes. We're now down to one with an additional and now a family of three. And so I think he was feeling that pressure and I was feeling that pressure and I had a tremendous amount of guilt about it. Um, and so it was just like a guilt cycle, constant Mm. guilt cycle. Yeah. You know? Um, Mm. so I think he, yes, he was concerned and he encouraged me to talk to people and to, but you know, when everything kind of like bubbled up and like really hit the pressure point, he was like, whatever we need to do to, to get you to a better place. Mm. So, um, he was, he was great, but I think he, I think he just didn't know. I think we both didn't know what it was. We didn't know if it was just temporary and like sleep deprivation or, you know, I, I wouldn't have for me, for some reason, like at the time admitting that I had postpartum depression was like incredibly shameful. Mm. Mm. Um, and you said you, you have some family history stuff, but like, had you experienced depression before postpartum depression at all? Not to that extent. I mean, I had gone through times where I was in a bit of a funk and like a little sad, you know, had like a heartbreak or something of that nature, but yeah, nothing, nothing like, but this. not like, yeah, yeah. Clinical no. depression. Yeah. No, um, not like I can't, you know, I, I wrote about this once and that this is really like, I, I was not the type of person that wanted to hurt myself or my child. Um, but I thought that if something were to have happened to me, I remember thinking, gosh, if I just got like, if I walked across the street and some some bus slammed into me and I perished that it would not be a big loss. Mm. Like this would be, you know, and it almost like, even if I were to be seriously injured, like maybe it would be a break from myself. Mm. 
So, um, so yeah, I don't, wow. yeah, I think, yeah, I never experienced those sort of emotions before. Wow. Um, and to the point where just like doing things like getting out of bed and taking a shower were, were a chore mm. and hard. Um, so Did I didn't you... do that a lot either. <laughs> wow. I mean, I got out of bed, but I didn't take a shower a lot. That probably <laughs> still hasn't changed very much. <laughs> you know, same. You know, same. Um, So what about, did you, did you go on, you said the second pregnancy, you went on medication um, earlier? Is that, is that what you were saying? um, So I just had the option when I went in and uh, when I was pregnant with my second son, I went into the same midwifery practice I had seen because I originally thought that I was going to have him um, with the same midwives at a hospital. Uh, and when I went there, they said, we know that you had issues with postpartum depression. If you want, we can like connect you with a counselor so that if these things happen again, they can talk to you about, um, you know, potentially taking drugs to help modify, you know, the, your emotions. Mm. Um, and, and I was like, oh no, 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 I don't need to talk to that person. I'm fine with that. I will absolutely do that. Um, mm-hmm. and I wound up with Hawthorne having a completely different experience. Um, mm. I went, yes. And I felt all the things that I had heard that you feel when you have a baby, but I did not feel with my first child who I of course love and adore and is wonderful. But I'd like, I had these moments of like that hormone rush of like, Oh my God, this child is magical. Like how could I have ever <laughs> produced something so wonderful? And like this instant bond with him that I had not had with Winslow. And I was, I was really nervous. And I think, you know, that, that I was going to have that, happen again. Um, but I, I didn't, and I think it, it was a second child. I didn't have as many doubts in myself, but I also think the circumstances, I had a lot of support with him, my husband, th- there were other stressors happening in our lives. Like my husband was unemployed at the time, but he was here for the first six months of Hawthorne's life. So he was around and it was kind of, you know, very idyllic, even though stressful, but like we could all go take walks together. It was just a totally different experience. And and I was more prepared and more comfortable and at ease with myself and didn't put nearly as many expectations on myself Mm. um, as I had done the first time. I really think that there's, for me, there's been no bigger shock to my life than going from zero children to one. Um, And that's not to scare people by any means, but I Mm. think you, you think you're going to be in control of so much because you always have been. Um, Mm. And I think that you put your, a lot of women, myself included, I like automatically the first thing that was sacrificed was me. And, and I cared so much about, and this is probably not true of everyone by any means, but I wanted people to think I was doing a good job and that I don't know why I cared so much about. I don't, I'm not sure. I think it's also this, you know, I'm sure you are quite aware of like the, um, the image that's put out there of, of having children. You oh know, yeah. What we see every day. And this was pre Instagram. This was like <laughs> 2009, <laughs> but, um, you know, to kind of weave it back to the social aspect of it. I mean, I'm sure there's even more pressure for women now. I mean, I can tell you there's been no caftan makeup days, you know, <laughs> like laying on the couch, like nursing. It was just, you know, an explosion and, uh, breast pads on the floor. You know, it was, it, there was nothing glamorous about it. Um, yeah. Absolutely. So I think we could see more of that and that would help women with pressure. But I also think that this is something that it's really, really normal. And, and I never known anybody that had it, nor have I known anybody to talk that would talk about it. And I had, so I had no one to talk to 
to tell me like, you should get some help beside my husband being like, are you okay? What's going on? I just kept this all to myself because I didn't want people to think, cause I thought that I was failing if I was feeling this way. Hmm. Uh, yeah. And I think there is there, I mean, I, I've never been a mother, so I only know what I observe in others, but so many of my friends, I think I'm like literally the, the last one that doesn't have kids. Um, but that's, you know, fine. Actually, maybe I have like two friends that don't have kids. Um, <laughs> but you know, watching them, each one of them and their process, um, you know, I think I've watched them, like every single one of them goes in with like this super granola, like um, it's going to be like a natural birth, a water birth, like I'll probably have an orgasm right at the end. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> the orgasmic birth. Man, who does? Yeah, that's I mean, I, it's a thing. It's apparently know, it's a yes. thing. Yeah. And There's I'm a like, video. There's a video. Yeah. I'm, I'm all about my... it. Like bring it yes. on. And like maybe one of these days I'll have an episode with someone who, you know, like I'll have an episode of someone who's, you know, yes. had one. That'd be great. But it's really like. I always feel a bit like, oh, like just one by one watching them be like, I'm going to have like, and they do their like posts of like, this is my birth plan and blah, 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 blah. And one by one, they're like emergency C-section, like C-section, <laughs> like, and then it's all this just not at all like their dream. And I just think mm-hmm. that we, as, as a culture, um, we must be doing something to create this sort of idealized world of like, this is what it's like. And then the reality looks so different to that, that like there's clearly a gap. And do you have an idea of what it is? Like, what's the gap that, that, you know, first time moms go in with these expectations um, or just dreams of like what it's going to be like. And then it's so different. Yeah. I think that it's our culture. I feel that we have, you know, there's a lot of other cultures who really honor the mother postpartum mm. and they give them space and time and resources and they heal or other countries who have maternity and paternity leave, you know, like this, like social programs that support that and promote that. Um, I think we are very much expect women to just bounce back and to be like, you know, at the board meeting with the nursing baby or without, you know, I think that there's, and I think that we've created this pressure for women in general to be all of these things. Like we've talked about at once. And I don't think that's impossible for anybody. You know, nobody can do that. So to be able to be, you know, to look great, to make food, to have a new baby, to um, be back at work at three months, well rested and, you know, ready to go. Like physically your body is just not evolution does not allow you to do that. It's like it's, it's impossible. Um, so, and then all, all the other things like making sure the breastfeeding is going really well and all that pressure that goes there. I, I just think that it's, um, I think that we've kind of, you know, it's been passed down for years and years. I remember, I remember my mom telling me she had a six week, you know, maybe it was a four week maternity leave with me. Wow. Um, and was back at work full time. Wow. Um, you know, and just, she had had no other options. So I just, and that was, you know, 1977. Wow. Um, so a while ago, but not too far long ago, you know, you know, it's somewhat in recent history. Um, so I just, I just think that, and I don't know, I can't speak to what it was perhaps like whenever we were talking like in the, you know, in the fifties when women had children, I, I don't feel like they had a lot of time to come home and rest. I think it was probably back to business as usual. If you were a housewife at the time, you 
were back to doing what you do. And then you just had this baby with you. And I'm not saying that women aren't capable of that. They absolutely are, but I just don't think it's good for them. I Mm. think that, um, also finding somebody as a provider, uh, like, for your care, I think it's really essential to find people who are supportive of you and your decisions. Um, I remember I was with my first child with Winslow. I was at the hospital and I had these midwives. They were awesome. I had, I had all of these things that you just said. I had the doula, I had the birth plan. I was going to do it natural. And I, I did, but I, at about eight and a half centimeters was begging for the epidural Mm. and for, and, you know, looking to my midwife for who was a lovely, wonderful person, but also was in a hospital setting. And, you know, there's certain things she can and can't, like I was asking for it. And I was just like, do you think I could do this? And she said, I do, but it's also, it's like, I can't tell you what choice to make, which I appreciate. Um, and so essentially I realized that I like was so close They're Like by the time that you deliver this baby, the epidural, like you're too close to deliver your baby to get the epidural at this point. Like it's been mm. some time, I had him and him, like some time went by. So, um, I, del- I had my son, it was pretty fast, like delivery once it was time to push. Like I, like three pushes had him cause I was standing up and screaming. Like I, this is another thing I did. I mean, like I was screaming at the top of my lungs and mm. afterward, during, I remember one of the nurses looked at me and said, honey, I know you don't care about this right now, but your, your, your throat's going to be really sore tomorrow. Mm. And I could tell even in that moment, like, Oh, this is her way of trying to quiet me down. You know, I'm being too loud. And after I had him, I remember laying down and apologizing. I'm so sorry. I was so loud. Like I'm so embarrassed. I mean, I just birthed a child and that was my first wave of emotion was embarrassment and shame. Mm. Oh my gosh. I must have terrified the other mothers here. Um, you know, and I think back on that and that's crazy. Like this is such a primal thing that it's going through whatever, whether you have the epidural or you're in a C-section, whatever happened, you should be allowed to react however you want to react. Mm. So I think it's like another one of these, like, just like the social norms that we've kind of accepted with this, which is also just like reality of postpartum. Nobody, like it can be really hard for people obviously. And nobody really wants to talk about it because they don't want to deter anyone from having children. <laughs> Maybe I don't know. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it is fascinating. I'm not quite sure why, it isn't talked about much. And I've, I've been, um, I've been witness to, I think six births. Um, yeah, it's, it's incredible. Um, and I've gotten to photograph some of them and they've been, they've ranged from completely natural home births to, um, hospital epidural and C-section as well. So, um, I've definitely seen it all. And, well, not at all, but, you know, a lot, a lot in terms of like the different styles of birth and the different ways, um, in which, you know, the women and like the mothers go through their, their process and their experience. Um, and it, it really is interesting to me that it's so, it's, it's so not something that's talked about. So, you know, what do you, what do you wish, um, that you had known, I guess, going in and, did you find your, um, you know, acupuncture and therapy, you know, were those things, were they the support that you needed, um, when you were going through realizing, oh, this is actually postpartum depression? Yeah, I, um, they were, they were wonderful. I think taking 
for me that worked really well. It did take the process itself was, was longer because of that. You know, I remember it being a year after I had realized that I was struggling with this and I was still going to acupuncture, still going to therapy and like had a moment where I was like, and I'm still feeling kind of depressed. Like it took me a while personally to bounce back. And I don't, I'm not saying that my taking some sort of antidepressant or something would have changed that. Um, I also feel like it allowed me to dig deep and process a lot of things because there had been a lot happening at that time. So I think whatever method works for the individual that happened to work well for me. Um, so, you know, and it also allowed me with my second to, to know that I trusted myself enough after going through and experiencing it to know the symptoms that could present themselves and knowing that I had done some of the deeper emotional work as well made me feel comfortable to say like, okay, so if this, if I start seeing these signs, I know this is hormone related and I would take something to help, Mm. you know, diminish those hormones, not diminish the hormones, you know, alter, help, you know, assist those hormones to better benefit me. Um, and I think that the, I don't know, for, for all women going into having, I, for me, like I said, I think that the first was just the most shocking for me, but this can happen with children in any order for, you know, obviously, um, at any time. And that's another thing too, that I did not know people could have postpartum depression when their child is five months old. I thought it was like the baby blues type of thing that happened right after birth. And it's, you know, technically something that can happen for the first two years after a child has been born. So, um, I think that we, as women, just, if we can, do our best. I mean, I know that there's, there's nobody telling, you won't know exactly what your experience is going to be like until you have your experience, but just being kind and compassionate towards yourself. And I was with my second child, I was fully fine with, um, I had had a home birth and we had, I had him in the downstairs and my midwife has said, you should not go use the stairs in your home for a week. I was so fine with that. I laid downstairs with my baby. I let people bring me food. I like did not, um, I wasn't trying to do all the things. Like mm. I, I was really at peace with just like being there. And I realized that in itself is, you know, very much a privilege and I was lucky in that way. But I think just letting yourself heal if you can and letting yourself accept help. I think that's a really big thing um, because you'll, because you need it. We all do and you deserve it. Mm. what um what let's say someone's listening to this and they're like hmm maybe maybe i had postpartum depression or maybe i have it right now um what do they need to know like how do you know that you have it how do you know and what if you aren't sure what should you do about it and if you have a friend like what would a friend want to say and definitely not want to say. Does that make sense? Like, what do you need in that moment? I think as far as questioning whether or not you have it, um, I think if you notice that you're feeling this way for an extended period of time, and I mean, I don't feel like you should let yourself go too far, but I think regardless, it never hurts to call and talk to somebody. And whether that is your midwife, your OB, the nurses at the OB's office, um, a therapist, and to talk about what you're feeling and your emotions and know that your body has been through so much and it's totally, completely normal and happens a lot. And that there's nothing that you could have done any differently to prevent it. 
you know, like there's, there's, there's no failure on anyone's part. Um, so I think that just seeking help or just speaking to someone that you trust and know, uh, could help answer your questions, concerns, or just listen to you. It's, it's, it's huge. Um, I think as far as being a friend to support somebody, I remember I, there was one person I shared this information with and I just said, gosh, I feel like I might have postpartum depression. I'm having a really hard time. And I think they did not know how to respond. And so they just kind of looked at me and just were like, uh-huh. And then just kind of like moved on to a different topic. And so and I love this person and they're a dear friend, but I think that that was not, that made me more self-conscious and embarrassed and definitely closed off and felt like I couldn't tell anybody. Mm. So I think if you're a friend and you, you suspect somebody might be struggling, just say, I want to check in. How are you doing today? Mm. You know? And I think that, and not saying, I'm, it seems like you've been struggling a little bit, or I noticed that you seemed a little upset the other night, or just like, are you, how are you feeling? How are things going with the baby? And are you taking care of yourself? Because mm. I think people put so much emphasis on taking care of the baby, which of course makes sense because the baby cannot do anything for itself. But, you know, like ask the mom, like, what are you doing? And can I come over? I mean, if it's somebody that doesn't have resources or family around um, or help, like, can I, can I come over and like, just let you take a bath mm. or t- take a nap and just hold the baby. Mm. Um, I think, and as a new mother being open to accepting that because mm. people want to help, they do, especially if you're, you're open up to them. Mm. Um, what you're saying reminds me, one of my, one of my friends that lives in San Diego, um, has two kids and I'm not sure, I'm not sure what, um, what tradition it is, but she there she has when she has the baby she has like two or three of like older women come over um and bathe her like a couple days okay. after she's had the baby mm-hmm. and the way that she describes it like she just is she she just talks about it like she just like lets herself be the baby and like be the one that's like being taken care of and that these older women are just like bathing her body that's just gone through this massive process and when she told me about it I was like kind of tearing up and I was like okay why is this something that I've never heard of before um and how beautiful is that and also like it it, like picturing myself in that in that instance I would be so wrestling with myself like this is so beautiful I want to just be in it and cry and have this be emotional and healing because my body just went through like massive trauma um but then on the other hand being like this is so weird I'm so not used to being like loved like this like especially I think in in like puritanical America we just don't you know even just like taking care of each other in like our bodies like our bodies are things that we don't kind of connect with and and especially when you know it's naked bodies and bathing there's there isn't just like oh yeah this is normal like you're you have a body I have a body I'm gonna bathe you it's like oh this is weird or this is sexual or this is like awkward or I have to like apologize for the fact that my stomach looks weird because I just had a baby like there are so many things that would be going through my head um in as if as I like put myself in her shoes where I'm like, Oh, I, this is amazing. Also so weird. Also amazing. Also so weird. Um, but I just yes. love, I just love that idea of like, whether it's someone like you said, um, you know, have you been taking care of yourself? Like 
can I come over and take care of the baby while you're showering or while you take a bath? Like just the very, very basic stuff that, you know, I think we, the faster our lives go and the more like the busier we are, the harder it is to remember like you just had a baby. This is massive. It's okay to receive support, to slow down. Um, And yeah, like meal trains are great, but even meal trains I feel like are getting, you know, moved out of the way because Postmates is there. So it's just like, well, we'll just Postmates, it's fine. Um, And it's just like that, that connection piece is slowly getting technologied out the door. Mm -hmm. No, that's a really good point. It's funny. I just set up a meal train for somebody. Um, And I think about like I, I do, I think, well, first of all, that story is beautiful. Um, and I think like it's, it, that's a huge, it's so vulnerable and like really lovely. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm sure it's, I love that that's part of her culture and heritage. I think that that should be adopted everywhere. Um, I, I love bath. I took a bath, a little bath every single day after both my kids for like a month. Um, just because it was like a really, it was one, it was a time to myself and two, it was like, just sort of like a really nourishing thing to do. So to have someone bathe me, it would have been like, wow, that would have been incredible. Um, <laughs> But I agree. I probably, especially with my first kid, I would have been wrestling with that. So I think that, yes, just, just small gestures. I also think that if I think just as a newborn mother being okay with saying no to things. So we had someone set up a meal train for us and it was awesome, but we had friends who had never had children and would come to our house and bring the food and want to eat with us, Mm. which was lovely and a great opportunity to connect with people. But you know, sometimes I just didn't feel like having people over or having them stick around. So being okay to say, Hey, just drop this food off at the door or, Hey, we want to like, thanks so much for coming. We want to, you know, we want to obviously say hi and for everyone to meet the baby, but we'll let you know that day if Mm. it's, you know, if we're open to having visitors in our space type of thing and, and being okay with saying that, like putting up boundaries that protect you and your family. Um, like, and, and knowing that there's nothing wrong with saying, I don't want to feel up to it today. Yeah. Um, get the fuck out uh, yeah totally like leave the food on the doorstep <laughs> we'll send you a text and let you know it was delicious yeah but i think that that's you know that's okay too i mean i get but i mean if you're craving you know and it's one thing to have a friend come over who you feel totally comfortable and like can walk around naked in front of and say i'm gonna go take a nap and here's the baby and my house is a wreck like letting those people in that you feel comfortable with doing that with um like and and then there's another thing like having your work colleague come over and bring you food and feel like you need to be presentable on your home is presentable. Like save that until you feel like you're in a space for it. Cause that's, that's just, that can be a lot of pressure. Mm. I think just like taking pressure off of ourselves in so many ways in life is really a good thing. Mm. But I think I look back on that girl now who was, you know, after, you know, my, my oldest, like I had mentioned is nine, almost nine. And I look back on myself when I had that baby and I just like want to, like be so compassionate towards that new mom Mm. um, and just tell her to take it easy on herself. Mm. That's beautiful. I love it. I just would encourage anyone to, I mean, reach out to me if you have questions. I mean, not that I'm like the end all be all, but that, um, that find some support, like find like, and if you feel like you can't find support for yourself, then tell your partner, to help you find some support or your like mother or mother or like whoever it is for you. And I have friends who have decided to have children on their own. So mm. like 
just be um, know that there are resources out there and that you don't have to suffer through this alone. Mm-hmm. Um, and that there's absolutely nothing wrong with you. Like you're doing an amazing job. It's just, it's just biology, a lot of it, you know? Dr. Cassidy Freitas is a licensed marriage and family therapist practicing in San Diego, California. She provides individual, couples, and family therapy to support the treatment of relational issues, anxiety, depression, illness, grief, and loss. Cassidy is also the host of her podcast, Holding Space, which is a wellness podcast exploring mental health, relationships, creativity, and education. Cassidy is also a wife and mother. Okay, so Cassidy, thank you so much for being willing to just kind of share what you know. Um, and I would love to, I would love to hear a kind of overview of, you know, the medical, the medical kind of explanation of just postpartum world. I, I mean, not to like take your take your time, but um, with talking about my my experience with it. But I just think it's this it's this kind of crazy unknown world. And especially for first time parents, it's there's how do you even prepare for like what what is it going to feel like and who do I talk to? Um, I would just love to hear kind of an intro to a very, very diverse topic. And um, thanks so much for, you know, weighing in. Yes, Caroline, thanks so much for having me. And I'm just so glad that you are wanting to start these dialogues because for myself, you know, speaking about my own experience, I was I was a therapist before I got pregnant and I thought that I knew. Mm. <laughs> I thought that I knew about, you know, perinatal mood and anxiety disorders. I thought I knew what the risk factors were and I thought I knew the protective factors and I just thought I knew. And then I became a mom and it just rocked my world. I was so humbled by the experience of actually what I did not know. And so, and I was, you know, I had been in years of training at that point and like had gone, I mean, it's just, so there are so many parents out there who are not prepared because I wasn't prepared. And I thought that I was right. Mm. Like I went to school and trainings and stuff and I was still not prepared. So I'm just so glad that you're starting the dialogue because I think the more that we can open up dialogue around these issues, the better. Um, Mm. so to answer your question, so perinatal mood and anxiety disorders is sort of the term that folks are using. Um, for short, we call it PMADS for perinatal mood and anxiety disorders. And the thing here is that they're often undiagnosed, mm-hmm. untreated, or undertreated. Um, so I think what a lot of people know 
you know, a lot more about would be postpartum depression. That tends to be the one that gets a lot more airtime in dialogue and conversation. So we can start there, but I definitely want to also touch on postpartum anxiety, postpartum OCD, um, PTSD or trauma from uh, pregnancy and birth, as well as postpartum psychosis, because these are real issues too that don't tend to not get that much airtime. Um, but starting with postpartum depression. So First, we could talk about baby blues, um, and this is something that happens in about 70 to 80% of new moms, and dads can experience baby blues as well, and we'll, I'll be sure to touch base about dads in a little bit, um, mm. but talking first about moms. Um, so baby blues is different from postpartum depression, and the difference is that baby blues tends to happen in the first two weeks, and then it goes away on its own and it tends to not impact overall functioning for the mom. You know, you just had a baby, your body is going through this huge hormonal shift and all of that combined with, you know, lack of sleep and just the huge life change that happened can, you know, put moms in a space of feeling, of feeling down, but it usually doesn't impact functioning. And usually after two weeks tends to um, go away. Postpartum depression, though, is different. And, you know, the numbers out there are, you know, tend to be like one in seven moms or one in five moms. So around like 15 to 20% of moms, from what we know in the research, are impacted by postpartum depression. And I, I take these numbers seriously, because I think that it does show that it, this is impacting a lot of moms, but I also take it with a grain of salt because I think that there are actually more moms that are being impacted by postpartum depression than these numbers actually tell us because the research only indicates those who are reporting it, right? And those mm. who are being found, but there are just so many moms who are suffering in silence. Um, and then these numbers definitely jump when you're looking at things like socioeconomic status. Um, so symptoms of postpartum depression tend to look like, um, obviously, feelings of sadness. So these are the, you know, if you just can't stop crying, even if there's, there feels like there's no real reason to be crying, feeling overwhelmed. And this is less like, wow, this mom thing is really hard. And it's more, I can't do this and mm. I'll never be able to do this. Um there's also feelings of guilt and shame. Um, it tends to be more shame. So guilt is more like, I feel like I'm doing something bad and shame is more of there's something wrong with me. Mm. Um, and so there, there can be feelings of, you know, feeling like your baby would be better off without you. Um, there's also like physical symptoms. So having no appetite um, or the only thing that makes you feel better is eating. Um, brain fog, um, insomnia, headaches, um, upset stomachs. Um, there can be feel, you know feelings of like feeling numb um, or anger and irritability. So these are some of the symptoms of postpartum depression in um, women. And then in dads. So a lot of my research has been actually in looking at dads um, because I found that when, you know, we, when my husband and I had our first that I was getting screened, which I was really happy to see and getting support. But then folks would turn to my husband and would say things like, Are, you know, you better be stepping up. Are you getting up at night? And it was just sort of this like, you know, 
how are you supporting her? Um, which I was, which is great. Like he, he, he should be supporting me. Right. Mm. But he was also struggling and mm. like every, like at every point in time, like with family or with friends or with medical providers, especially medical providers, the message there was like, be strong, you know, um, like mm. even if you're suffering and struggling. And so I became really interested in, you know, for, for personal reasons, how we can support dads. Um, and once we healed as a family, then got more, you know, myself throwing myself into research and, you know, clinical practice in supporting dads. And so the, what we, what the research says is about one in 10 dads. So 10% of dads will experience paternal postpartum depression. And it can look very similar. You know, there's, um, men can be tearful and feelings of hopelessness and, um, feelings of guilt and shame, feeling overwhelmed. Um, but there tends to be a little bit more of some escapist behaviors. So not wanting to be home, um, alcohol use, drug, drug use, um, irritability, frustration, and anger. Um, so sometimes it doesn't look like what you stereotypically think of depression, but it is depression. Um, Mm. and men tend to not be screened. And so they're not getting the support. Um, but they're also not sleeping. Right. And they're also going through this huge identity shift and relationship shift. Um, so men really can struggle also, but we tend to not talk about that. Um, which, you know, I think is rooted in our like, you know, institutional issues around patriarchy, but men can actually suffer too at the hands of patriarchy, you know? Mm. And so I think that this is a huge issue as well that I'm, you know, both personally and professionally really interested in, in kind of spreading the word about. So, um, when you have, um, let's say people that come to you, whether, you know, whether they are mothers or fathers, um, do you find that they have any sort of like inclination that something isn't quite right when they come to you? Um, or is, is it often something that is, you know, so, um, miseducated that, that there isn't really an awareness. Um, it's just kind of like something that you have to support people in realizing that something is affecting them. Yeah. You know, unfortunately, most often when people come to me, they have been suffering for a long time and Mm. it's my hope with, you know, starting dialogue around these issues is that that doesn't, that that isn't the case, right? That we don't have to suffer alone, that these families don't have to suffer alone for as long as they are. And a lot of times, because one of the biggest risk factors actually for paternal depression is maternal depression. And so you have couples and parents who are just really suffering. And it's usually gotten to the point where like something they, you know, something is really going wrong, right? Around parenting or, you know, their, their doctor is saying you really need to get support. Um, finally, at some point they, they walk through my doors, but honestly people come in and they are like at their wits end with things like they are, they're not sleeping, they're not functioning. Mm. Um, when it comes to like postpartum anxiety, OCD, um, postpartum PTSD, these things that 
I feel like those tend to be more of the ones where folks come in and they're talking about symptoms or things that they're struggling with, and they may not be able, they may not identify it as being Mm. OCD or PTSD or anxiety. Um, But when it comes to depression, I feel like folks tend to come in after they've been suffering for a really long time in silence and alone, Mm. unfortunately. Yeah. Um, What is, what is the, um, the path to health look like? Is it something that, is it talking through things? Is it medication? Is it time? You know, what are the things that actually support when things are feeling so dark? Yeah. So I think what's helpful is to kind of first look at what, um, what folks are calling the six stages of PMADS, um, the perinatal mood and anxiety disorders. And I, I'm pulling this from a really great resource that is a branch of Postpartum Support International, which is like the number one resource. And so I'm pulling this from Postpartum Progress. And they they looked at, uh, maybe you've heard the six stages of grief. Well, mm. these six stages tend to really be fitting for a, the experience of a lot of um, postpartum um, individuals. So first there's denial, right? This is the stage where folks are like, okay, I'll, I'll be fine. I just need more sleep. Um, I'll be fine. You know, like you're kind of in the denial stage. Um, and then there's the anger where folks are feeling like, why me? This is a time that's supposed to be filled with joy. And I feel like nobody understands me. Um, you know, I don't want to meet a therapist. I don't want to have to call my doctor and, finding themselves just angry and frustrated with the situation that they find themselves in. And then there's bargaining. Um, If I just exercise more, maybe if I just get to the next stage, right? So a lot of parents will say like, well, maybe I'm just waiting for the next stage. I'm waiting for my baby to sleep through the night. Um, But while they're waiting, they're suffering. And then, and then that stage comes and there's other, there's other stressors, right? And um, that's just sort of like kicking rocks until you get support um, while you're suffering and potentially getting worse during that time. Um, I'll also see some, you know, um, some couples or families or individuals saying like, if I just pray more, you know, like, and so there can be a lot of messages, right. Mm. That that can come from communities or people around them. And obviously it's not always bad, but sometimes the messages are well-intentioned, but put folks feeling like, okay, well, I guess if I just do this more, then I'll feel better. And they're bargaining, but they're not actually getting the support. Um, and then after bargaining would be depression, right? So this is when folks, this is usually the point in time when folks will come and finally walk through my doors or, or finally get help, right? Um, or, or they're, they're just, they're at the point where they're just about to get support. So this is the, the place where people are saying like, everyone would be better off without me. It will never get better and just feeling really hopeless. And then comes the acceptance. And that's when you decide that what's happening to me is not normal and I need help. It's okay to get help. There's help out there. I'm not alone. Um, and so this is the point in time usually when folks will reach out to their doctor or reach out to a therapist or go to a support group. So treatment, to answer your question, looks like taking the step, having the courage, because man, it takes courage to say I'm suffering and I need help. But to take that, to have the courage to put your, to put 
those things that are feeling so shameful inside of you out into the world to the people who have earned the right to hear it, right? So the people that feel safe saying, I am hurting, I am struggling, I need help, um, enlisting those supports to be a part of the process for you. And so I've, I can't tell you how many times I've had family members call me to um, help set up appointments um, or to find resources. Um, I used to be a warm line volunteer for the Postpartum Health Alliance, which is a great resource here in San Diego. And um, a lot of family members would call and say, like, I, my, my daughter or my sister or my wife are struggling and I want to know how to help them, um, mm. but I don't know how. And so you know, I think it's it's taking the step to just to put that thing out there with the people who have earned the right to hear it, because not everybody is safe. Right. Um, but to put it out there with those who are. Mm. Yeah, that's uh, that's so, so right. Not everyone is safe. And so many people have great intentions. You know, like I, I think of when you said that some people would say, you know, I just should pray more. Even if you went to someone, you know, in a church or in some sort of um, caring space, but not a trained space, you know, there would be so many people who are just like, oh, all you need is this smoothie or this prayer or this whatever. And, and sometimes, you know, it is, it's, it's more complicated than that. Sometimes you need to talk to a trained professional who has studied both the psychology and the physiology of it. It isn't just a, you know, pray it away kind of thing. So, um, Yes. And there's, there's just things that you don't say to a mom who's struggling with postpartum depression. And mm. some of those things are, um, you know, and they're usually well-intentioned, but saying something like, oh, that happens to everyone. Usually someone, try, and this is usually someone trying to help normalize, but in that moment, just saying, oh, that happens to everyone is not useful. Yeah. Um, saying something like you'd feel better if you had a glass of wine, take a walk outside, have a quiet bath, you know, these things, while somebody is in the middle of a major depressive episode, like that's it's not telling somebody what they need to do isn't actually going to be useful. It's okay to share something like this. This is something I tried. Then leave it at that. Don't frame things as musts or shoulds because when you're in the middle of a major depressive episode, you're going to hear that and you're just going to feel like, look, I'm not doing enough, right? Mm-hmm. Like, um, so, you know, also I've, gosh, I've had women say things to me like, you know, this, this was told to me by a family member from a generation before me, you know, oh, when I had a baby, I didn't have time to be depressed, you know? <laughs> oh, that's helpful. Um, like, that's yeah, not helpful at all, yeah. you know? Um, wow. Or something like you should feel blessed, you know, you've always wanted a baby, you should be happy. Um, you know, if they could, they would. You know? So yeah. like these are things that just aren't helpful. But um, things that are helpful to say are things like, hey, I can come over at three and hold the baby. I can come over and drop off food. I can do that today. I can do it tomorrow. I can do it during this time frame. Um, just stepping in and saying, this is what I can do. Right. Because mm-hmm. um, if you just say, what can I do to help? You're, it's too, it's too like you're putting it back on them and they might, may not even be in the place to identify what it is that they need help with. Um, so just sort of voicing what it is that you are able and willing to do. Um, saying things like, these are your symptoms. These aren't you. This isn't you. These are the symptoms, right? Mm. Um, I know how hard you are trying. I'm here for you as long as it takes, mm. right? Like, 
um, Brene Brown has done these, has this amazing Ted talk where she talks about the difference between empathy and sympathy. Oh yeah. So good. Yeah. Yeah. Have you seen, have you heard that one? So good. It's so good. And it's just, it's so true that when people try to put a silver line on someone's suffering, it just drives disconnection and it makes that person feel worse. So saying things like, well, at least you can have a baby and look how beautiful your baby is. Um, but that's sympathy and sympathy doesn't actually help. But if you can show up for somebody like in the hole with them and say, I hear you, I see you. I've, I have felt pain before also, or even like, I don't even know what to say right now. I'm just so glad you told me and I'm here. Like Mm. that's all right. And then, and then once that person feels heard, it's easier for them to open up and then it's easier for you to support them in taking those steps to get the help that they actually need. Mm. Now, what about, um, let's say there are, you know, one mother has multiple children. Is there any sort of, um, you know, let's say the first one that postpartum depression was a real experience for her. Is there almost like pre-anxiety of, of like, you know, I don't want that to happen again. Or, you know, are there any sort of, um, is there any sort of data on just the, the frequency at which the same parent goes through, um, you know, postpartum symptoms, um, postpartum depression, um, if they have multiple children, like, does it change over time or, um, are there different children that act different, differently to postpartum symptoms? Yes. So when, when, so, so what we know about depressive episodes is that when you have one, you are more likely to have another. That is of course, when the post, when the depression go is going untreated. Right. And so if a mom has postpartum depression with her first child, absolutely there can be, you know, fears around getting pregnant again and having that experience again. Um, there can be, um, and, and also this can the same thing can go with different scenarios. Um, like I, for instance, I had um, a loss, a pregnancy loss between my daughter and my son, and when I got pregnant with my son, I mean, I completely completely like my first pregnancy, I just had this like naive, like joy, you know, of like being pregnant. And with the loss, um, I lost that naive, that joy. Right. And so I was, I experienced a lot of anxiety during that whole, um, you know, it was my third pregnancy. And so there's different, I mean, when, when we experience loss or we experience depression or we experience any of these we have these experiences, it does change our experience then moving forward. And again, you can be, there is a greater chance of having a depressive episode if you have a history of depression um, or have had a prior postpartum depression experience. But if it goes treated and if you become more aware of um, uh, um, the protective factors and are an agent, right, of of making these sort of changes and and really, you know, enlisting supports, um, then then the chances of you having another depressive episode significantly go down. Mm. Um, and then to answer your question about like the child, them, that the child themselves, right? I mean, when you have a child who has, for instance, colic, right? Mm. Or a child who, I mean, there's some babies who come out and they just like, the parents don't do anything specific and the baby is just a good sleeper. Like they just sleep through the night at like, 
you know, three weeks postpartum. And I always tell those moms, I'm like, that's amazing. And you just got to keep that to yourself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I mean, sort of, but like, <laughs> it's just, I mean, it's, there are just some, some babies who are more colicky, have a harder time sleeping. Their digestive systems are just not as developed when they come out. And so they just have a harder time in outside of the womb. And that is so hard. And then if you have um, multiples, so if you are, if you have twins or triplets, um, that also can be a risk factor for depression and or anxiety because, you know, it's, it's double time or triple time. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, so the, the babies themselves can also play a, play a role in all of this. Um, but again, there are also so many protective factors, you know, so proactively utilizing your positive community or social supports, um, having other mom friends, um, having a strong relationship with your partner, um, you know, just, you know, being proactive about therapy and talking to your doctor. Um, so there's a lot of protective factors that can support moms who um, are at risk because they've had depression before or a, a family history of depression um, or depression in their first pregnancy mm. or postpartum. Now, what about if someone went through, you know, let's say either someone listening to this or just someone in in general realizes kind of looking back, oh my goodness, I had that. Like, oh my goodness, I had untreated, you know, postpartum depression or postpartum anxiety or, you know, I I can see now, you know, in hindsight that I went through that. Is there a lasting effect? Is there anything that sh- can be done to support now if it if it happened, let's say, two, three, four, ten years ago? Yeah. Yeah. So, This is something that comes up a lot, sort of the looking back and the feelings of shame um, or and and sometimes that can happen even within that first year. Once you get once a mom gets treatment, she looks back at the first couple of months and sees how much she was suffering and how disconnected she felt from her baby. So the the important thing to know here is that if as soon as you get professional help, the less potential it's going to affect your your you or your children or the relationship or have or have any negative long term effects. And so, yes, there's research out there that can be really shame producing that you know makes a mom feel like, gosh, I had postpartum depression. Like now my kids are ruined. That's not. There are there are so many ways every single day that repairs around any attachment ruptures that have happened can be repaired. So there is just, there's so many opportunities for, um, for, for growth and for connection and for healing that can happen. And the, the sooner that we're able to say, to name that these were experiences that we had and to get help, then the less impact long-term that these experiences or attachment ruptures are going to have. Um, does that does that does that answer the question? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um I yeah, the the thing that I hear you say which is just naming is so oh, it's so, so supportive awesome. to just be like, "Oh, that's what I was going through." And whether it's something really small or whether it's something huge like like a trauma or an abuse to be able to name it and to be able to 
put words to it um, just really takes away the kind of control and power that that thing has had over me in my own life to just be able to say, oh, that's what that was. It sort of it it creates an understanding of what it was and also kind of like you said before with the symptoms it removes it from my identity so instead of it being this is me it's oh that thing that has a name and a label and is separate to me is is not me it's not my identity oh absolutely it's i mean our brains love to create a story Mm. and sometimes our brains because our brains basically are trying to protect us, we're hardwired for efficiency, not always accuracy. So we look back at experiences, we put them together, and we create a story, a storyline around it. And that can sometimes lead to us feeling like our experiences are completely connected to who we are, right? And this like narrative that we develop around who we are as parents and who we are in context with our children. Um, But when we name something and we're able to externalize it as this was postpartum depression or I was struggling with postpartum OCD or PTSD, when we are able to name something, it allows us to then go back through that narrative that we've created, right, And, and, and brings context to it, better understanding, and there's more room there for compassion right, mm. for, for our experiences. Oh, sorry. There's a plane flying over right now. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's okay. I just heard that. I was like, wow. Um, I love that. Um, so, so I, I mean, I could talk to you for so long about this and I have so many, so many questions. Um, but I also just want to, you know, respect your day and time and I'm sure you have clients to get to. Um, but just sort of in closing, what is, what is your vision, um, you know, in this work? What is your hope for this field of work and just for parents, for parents in general, also for friends um, of parents, you know, what's your, what's your vision for this field of work in, in America and in the world? Um, and how, how does your work um, play into your vision for this? Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a great question. I mean, I think my hope is that we just, we start, we start with dialogue, we start with conversations, um, but then we just don't stop there. We actually then um, become agents for change. And so one of my, one of the reasons um, I have a podcast called Holding Space, and one of the reasons I stepped into it, into the larger wellness conversation, which was super nerve wracking um, as a therapist, where often so much of my dialogue and conversations happen in the privacy of, in private, right? Mm. With my clients and in those, those moments, um, but was to start dialogue. Um, but then also we need to be agents for change. And this goes from the things that can happen in the therapy room for me also, but also in teaching the next generation of therapists and educating medical providers, um, just bringing education to the stakeholders of who are, you know, people who are stakeholders in these, in these issues and these struggles. Um, but it also goes to the like law, like legal and government level, right. Of changes that need to be made around, um, you know, em- employers, you know, being, um, pr- providing, you know, good support to both moms and dads Mm. who are, who just had a baby. Um, but it also goes to, you know, 
oftentimes when we think of like the celebrities who are talking about their postpartum struggles, a lot of these are white women Mm. and we need to be expanding the conversation to women of color, to our LGBTQIA and beyond, um, you know, community members, you know, it's, it, it's not just, oh, let's put, you know, pictures of women of color on our pamphlets and stop it at that. I mean, there are real, real issues in the world of postpartum, you know, maternal and paternal mental health care that are, are leaving women of color um, and, and, you know, our LGBTQIA community members in a place where they're they're really suffering alone mm. um, and not getting support that they need and not getting treatment. And so I think, you know, I, I have a lot of big missions um, and hoping to use um, any privileges that I do have to, you know, bring um, support and um, yeah, to, to, to this overall mission of just like, we, we, we really need change. We really need change in the area of family um, perinatal mental health care and not just focusing on mom and not just focusing on baby because for a long time the focus was on baby and then we started to talk about mom thank goodness and now we're just starting to talk about dads right and so really looking at the whole family health no matter what that family looks like mm, I love it I love that it's so true I was I mean if we had more time I I absolutely wanted to ask you about um you know same-sex couples when it comes to parenting and you know sometimes even um like can an adoptive parent have you know postpartum depression when when they didn't actually carry the child um and I'm sure that there are so many so many things in research all about that already but um like you said I just want to quickly answer that question for you yeah. is that yes, they, can. they absolutely can. And sometimes there can be this experience of like, you know, when I, when I, when we adopt, when we went through the process of adoption, I mean, so much work went into having this child in our lives. Mm. And then, but then when you begin to feel any experience, any symptoms of anxiety or depression, you might feel even more like I shouldn't be feeling these things because we worked so hard for this. Mm. Right. So, um, parents who adopt are, are, very likely to suffer in silence and to suffer alone because they feel like they shouldn't be because they work so hard to become a parent, Mm. you know? Um, That makes so much sense. Um, And I, I, but I just think it's so, um, I'm so inspired by your work and your focus and just opening the conversation. Um, Because like you said, it's sometimes it's just a matter of having the dialogue to realize, oh, I thought I was alone in this or, oh, I had so much shame about this um, that I didn't even bring it up. And and so just the more that we kind of say, like, this is what I'm going through or this is what I went through, the more we can all learn from each other, support each other um, and change, which is is so incredible that that's so much of the work that you do. So thank you so much. Um, I'm really inspired by by you and your heart and the work that you do. Thank you, Caroline. Can I just share a few quick resources? Yes, please do. And I can link them in the in the notes as well. Great. So um, Postpartum Support International is absolutely the number one resource. Um, No matter what 
where you live. So Postpartum Support International. Um, a branch of that is Perinatal Mental Health Alliance for Women of Color that I think is um, a great resource as well. Um, I'm local here in San Diego. That's where my private practice is. And I have to give a shout out to the Postpartum Health Alliance here in San Diego because they're just an incredible resource for um, those families living in San Diego. Um, in L- in Los Angeles, um, Erica Chitty Cohen's um, uh, uh, the Loom. Her um, is a great resource for. It's called Loom, a great resource for families. And she has a because because we talked about LGBTQIA and beyond. She has a great class that she offers for the LA community members um, called Kin. Um, and yeah, so those, those are, and, and Postmortem Support International also has a division, um, a branch that really focuses on dad's mental health. Um, a colleague of mine actually runs that. And so um, there's some great resources for dads there as well. Amazing. Thank you. I will link all of those places in the notes, um, but thank you for being practical with, with actual steps to um, support. So I really appreciate that so much. Thanks, Caroline, for having me. Stick around for part two of this out-of-line discussion to hear a Q&A with Amanda Carter Gomez about her social media practices. This episode of Out of Line was produced by me, Caroline. All sound editing, engineering, and original music composition by Jaden Lee. And a big thank you to Cat Footwear for working with Out of Line this season. Hit subscribe to get the next episode on your mobile device when it drops next week. And if you love what you heard, please whip out a review, will ya?